The Irish Times Inside Politics podcast is going to be holding another live event. This one is in central Dublin on Thursday, May the 16th at 8am. We are going to be in Medley in Dublin too. We only have a few tickets left, so if you want to join me in conversation with head of Ipsos polling in the US, Cliff Young, along with Pat Leahy and Jennifer Bray, looking at the polling in Ireland in the run-up to the European and local elections, just go to irishtimes.com slash events where you can get your tickets. 
it bothered me more, but I think it also bothered me more because I was locked in my home and I was only being represented to the, the world by my thumbnail on Twitter. And I probably cared too much and was a little bit confused about who I was in that period, as many of us were. You know, mm. humans are social beings and we, we, we create ourselves in conversation with one another, not just out of a sense of who we are deep down inside. So all of this became sort of Basically, it, I, I decided it was sort of a a literary tool to to get at different kinds of vertigo and and uncertainties about the self. So, I mean, it's a very different kind of a book from the ones I mentioned earlier. It's it's both it's both much more personal, and as you as you kind of hinted at there, it's 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 sort of more literary. I would say in that it there are really echoes, and you you go into some of these things in the book itself. There are echoes of other art forms psychological thrillers, gothic fiction, horror films, you know, there's even a touch of comedy sometimes. But the idea of the doppelganger, of another you, of a mirror image, has always been very powerful um, in in art. And that's something that that you use in the book a lot. Yeah. um, And it also does seem to surge uh, in the cultural sphere in moments of vertigo in and also in moments when when people are very frightened by what they're seeing around them so for instance the first uh, piece of theoretical works about doppelgangers and why they seem to be so present in literature and film was a piece by Otto Rank who is a student of Freud's and he um, published this piece in the first year of the first world war um, and then there's a whole other wave of doppelganger art that comes out in response to the Second World War, um, where the figure of the double, like the other you, the shadow self, is used as a way to understand fascism, as a way to understand how an open society flips into its sinister twin. Uh, um, and so I think when you watch people who you thought you knew change, it makes you search for these kind of metaphors of like, what is the self and how does the self change so quickly? So, um, yeah, it is different than my previous books because my previous books always were a very clear thesis and then argument proof, argument proof, and then, you know, climb up that sort of straight mountain trail together and then say that we got there. <laughs> and mm. then, and this book has more detours and winding paths and it's a weirder book for, for a weirder time, I would argue. Was it weird to write? It was so much fun to write, to be honest mm. with you. Like, I let myself have fun, more fun as a writer than I than I had since I wrote my first book, Since No Logo. I think because I had the great fortune of, of having my first book be a success in the way that No Logo was. And that was a more fun book. I think if you go back and take a look at No Logo, there was, I, I made fun of myself. I called it a Mallrat memoir. I didn't take myself too seriously because no one knew who I was. And then I think because... I became a certain kind of avatar for for the left. Um, after that, for a few years, the books that I wrote, like The Shock Doctrine or This Changes Everything, had a more serious authorial voice. Um, I was more frightened in a sense of like, I, I took myself more seriously, let's just say, because I was mm. under more scrutiny. And, and there's good reasons for that sometimes. Yeah, and yeah. I, I mean, yeah. I'm not throwing those books under the bus, but sure. I, I, but I think... The fun thing about having a doppelganger, especially a doppelganger gone wild, as I do, 
is that it forces you to take yourself less seriously because what it's what it's saying to you is, you know, you can put all the labor you want into sort of perfecting and performing some idealized version of serious you, but if a not insignificant number of people out there in the world, including, as you said, yourself, you um, think that I'm the person who's saying, um, you know, that those oddly shaped clouds are part of a government conspiracy or that, um, you know, ISIS beheadings are being are actually crisis actors, then maybe all of that labor is 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 for naught. And you may as well just sort of have fun with the whole idea of having a public persona. So that's what I do with this book. And it was exactly when those sorts of things started coming out, I thought, okay, I need to figure this one out fast and not make, like, uh, I'm glad to say I never made the mistake in public or in professional yeah. life or, or or on social media or or anything like that. But, I mean, there is a thing about the other Naomi, as mm-hmm. you as you call her in the book. I mean, you're not that alike. She's American. You're Canadian. She started by writing, she, her first book, The Beauty Myth, was sort of, well, it was about feminism. It was mm-hmm. often regarded as a kind of a key text of yeah, third wave feminism yeah, yeah. at the end of the 80s. You are coming from a much more uh, leftist, uh, systemic yeah. uh, econo- mm-hmm. economic Democracy. analysis. Mm-hmm. I mean, you're both Jewish. You're both called Naomi Klein, Wolf. But I, I just wonder when you say maybe people were always doing this, reading the book, it seems to me that there is a kind of a key crossing point around yeah. 2009. Um, around the time of the financial crash and its aftermath and Occupy Wall Street. Yeah, and I think that it's that's when she stopped writing as much about about gender and started writing specifically about states of emergency, like how how elites were using states of emergency. And I had written The Shock Doctrine in 2007, so I can see why that got confusing. And then during COVID... You know, I'm sure lots of your listeners know people who believe that COVID was some sort of grand plot by the Davos elites to push in a new th- through a new world order. And there is a way in which the sort of structure of that conspiracy has some similarities with the argument that I made in the Shock Doctrine, which is a book. It is a book about conspiracies that are proven, like mm. you know, the CIA was involved in the destabilization of the Allende government in Chile 50 years ago to uh, install a military dictatorship, and it then became a laboratory for Chicago School Economics. I mean, that book uh, that book has 70 pages of endnotes, and it's on hundreds of course lists, and it, I think it's withstood the test of time in terms of whether or not it is a conspiracy or not, right? You know, I have a section of the book saying some conspiracies are real. And I think as journalists, it's really important that we be very careful not to be so credulous as to you know, react to surging conspiracy culture in such a way that we're acting as if no conspiracies happen. I mean, that would put investigative journalists out of business. And we do live in a time of extreme wealth concentration where it is there are lots of people think that, that their wealth puts them above the law. It doesn't mean that they're kidnapping children to drain them of their adrenochrome, as the QAnon folks would have would have you believe. But it, it does mean that they, you know, might make a deal here and there to 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 keep things from regulators. And and uh, so we still need we we still need to to be vigilant about about absolutely. So so just because yeah. you're paranoid doesn't mean they aren't out to get you sometimes. <laughs> but the question of who they is obviously forms right. part of that so, too. But but to you know. Things got more confusing during COVID when there was this kind of 
I call it like a doppelganger of the shock doctrine argument out there with like a doppelganger of the shock doctrine with all the facts and evidence removed. Um, and this this sort of conspiracy whirl, you know, which was bringing together people from the left and the right. And uh, they were making absolutely wild claims that sometimes had grains of truth in it. I mean, it's absolutely true that tech companies were making a killing during the pandemic. It's absolutely true that pharmaceutical companies were profiteering off of those vaccines, which, in my opinion, should never have been patented in the first place. It should have been in the public domain because it was funded with taxpayer money and the entire business model was governments mass buying these vaccines. Um, So, you know, they take elements of truth and they mix it with fantasy and create a a wholly paranoid worldview that focuses all of, I think, people's um, fully understandable and in some cases righteous rage at elites and makes it a problem of, you know, Anthony Fauci, Bill Gates, Klaus Schwab from the World Economic Forum, the Jews and the Chinese Communist Party. And then it's, you know, the story is we just need to get those people put them up on, you know, war crimes, you know, before a war crimes tribunal, and then we can have good, healthy capitalism again. Um, So that's not what I believe. I have a systemic analysis of how the world works. I don't think it's just about getting a handful of bad guys and then everything will be fine. Uh, But I can see why there is an appeal to the story that they're telling. And I also can see why people got their Naomi's confused, especially when we're represented to the world through these little thumbnail Well, exactly. And I do want want to come to that. But before we do it, some people listening to this may think, oh, this is a classic example of what some people call horseshoe theory, Mm -hmm. that people on the radical left are actually able to make the jump very quickly to the radical right because it's a sort of it's a sort of a mindset. Um, the, 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 it's two mindsets that are not too far apart. Now, whether or not that that's true, I'm not I'm not sure that it is at all. This is not the case here because, in fact, you're well to the left by the way yeah, by mean, most people's standards argue, of Naomi yeah, Wolf. I would argue that people that that leftists who have a whose politics are rooted in a systemic analysis of how capitalism works, how imperialism works, um, you know, and that's the left that I see myself as a part of um, and that most of my books have been, you know, explorations of these systems and what they produce and how they change through time, um, that, that that inoculates us rather well. I mean, not it's not foolproof, but I think it inoculates us rather well from the grand conspiracy worldview that because the, what all these conspiracies have in common is the idea that there's like a room somewhere where all of the bad things are being cooked up and that then if you were to get those people and that's the sort of narrative structure of a QAnon uh, conspiracy right it, it's all building towards a great storm that which which is the the lingo that they use when you know, a savior-like figure like Donald Trump is going to arrest all of the bad guys and send them to Gitmo. This is really what they believe. This is why there's like, I don't know, when they, when they had that protest outside the doll recently or or riot or whatever you want to call mm. it. Um, you know, you'll, you'll often see signs that say things like make the Nuremberg Code great again, um, which or, or bring, bringing gallows, right? Like it's this idea that we are just going to get this this handful of people who have poisoned the good system that we are going to take back, right? It's a very nostalgic worldview. Um, make America great again, right? Like it's 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 your Ireland for the I mean, it's an idea that there was there's a there's a bygone era. There's a sort of pr- uh, image of the pristine, pre-fallen um, uh, system. And so it, it, I, in my experience, it is not 
leftists with a systemic critique who tend to believe these wild fantasies. It's, it tends to more be liberals or left, green left-ish people who, I say ish, not leftist. Mm. Um, so people who have kind of more of the lifestyle or more, they're more into holism or wellness. Lots of people who are have a more entrepreneurial approach, like maybe they have their own yoga studio or they they um, are selling various tinctures online. Um, There's a lot of those people around. Yeah, there is. I mean, I mean it's I, a big part yeah. of contemporary culture. Isn't it, it is. It? Yeah, and mm. that's why I, you know this chapter in the book I, is 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 called the far out meets the far right um, because I think it is much more the far out and not the far left that has flipped over um, to you know if if you are already sort of very focused on having like a really pure, clean diet, and you're really, really focused on how the to- there are toxins and all of the food and all, of, and, I, and I'm not saying that there isn't, but if that's like your main politics, then, well, sure, if somebody says, well, these vaccines are made by big pharma and they're going to pollute your body and pollute your child, and then the, the next thing you know, you're worried about all these other threats to your child, like, uh, you know, the, the 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 histories of racism that they're learning in schools or all gender bathrooms or all, and everything is cast as a conspiracy against the pure self and the pure child. There's a way in which all of this kind of clicks together and rhymes. And I do think it's not horseshoe theory. I call it diagonalism, borrowing a phrase from a, a couple of political theorists in the, in the States, William Callison and Quinn Silbidian. And, you know, they argue that diagonalism mixes elements of, like, the spiritual holism, the entrepreneurial self, with this idea that all power is conspiracy, and it reliably arcs to the right. Hmm. Because the kind of conspiracy theories you, you, you write about in the book and the ones you've mentioned there, for example, QAnon, it's really obvious. They all go back to what in our culture, I think, is the original conspiracy theory, which is anti-Semitism. Mm-hmm. Really, you don't, have to, you don't have to scrape it very very hard to to find that underneath. Anti-Semitism right. was famously described as socialism for the stupid. Socialism, the socialism of fools. Socialism of fools, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. I think that's just as bad, isn't it? But it's, um, so it, so it's, it, it, it takes a lot of ideas which people associate with the left, some of which you've mentioned yeah. there, and then it completely distorts, simplifies them. To what end? Well, and, and the Nazis did that very explicitly. Sure. You know, they would talk about Jewish capitalism, that this was the sort of specter that they had to eradicate so that you could get to good capitalism again. But notably, the the, the Nazis were extremely concerned about actual socialism. They saw that as their main political competitors. So, you know, I argue in the book that the way to fight the socialism of fools, which, you know, I would argue that that all of this sort of fantastical conspiracy culture is kind of a socialism of fools in the sense that um, it it taps into very real um, anger and disappointment and senses of betrayals about capitalism failing huge numbers of people in our culture. And this is why I say we, sh- we should not be so um, credulous that we end up acting as if, you know, there's nothing, there's no there there, that it isn't, that there's no reason why people are upset. You know, it's easy to mock people who are standing outside of you know, the doll saying, like, I am angry. But a lot of people are angry, and they're angry because they, they a lot of them believed that if they worked hard, they were going to move up, you know, through the economic ladder. They believed that a booming economy was going to lift all boats. Um, they be, And now they can't afford their grocery bills, and they can't afford rent, let alone a mortgage, and neither can their kids, and they're trying to understand this kind of brokenness. Um, if 
if nobody has ever explained to you how capitalism works, this would be baffling and you would be very vulnerable to this idea that that it's just a plot by a few people that we can eradicate. And that's, you know, that's what I mean by by a socialism, by it all being a kind of social, a kind of doppelganger of socialism, a skewed socialism. But I believe that one of the ways that you fight that is with the socialism of facts um, that really explains how these systems do work because it, you don't beat it by, with, with some kind of... Um, self-satisfied centrism going, no, everything is fine. Can't you see that the economy is booming? What are you so worried about? Stop being so extreme. I mean, we live in very extreme times and that tends to either go left or right. And right now it's going hard right. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. There's a strong element in this, it seems to me, of kind of a series of resentments around status and and class um, and opportunity. And in a way, some Mm. of the ways in which politics have flipped over the last couple of decades is that, uh, and I'm oversimplifying here, it's not entirely the case, but that, for example, in the United States, where some of this opposition is at its most most extreme, um, a marker of of being a Democratic Party voter is increasingly having an education or a third level qualification of some sort, and the Obverse is true on the on on the red state side, and then along alongside that, you you can often get a, yeah. a sense that the educated elites, the progressive elites, whatever you may want to call them, are looking down their noses at yeah. at, at the other side, yeah. and that obviously you know uh, adds to the kind of tensions. Yeah, and it also it, turns everything upside down. It, it does, and I think that that's why you know in the book I quote the late great um, U.S historian of, you know, sometimes called the prophet of doom, Mike Davis, who's, who, who, you know, he ex, ex, exhorts the left to speak in the vernacular. You know, if these issues are important and they are, then then stop speaking in this sort of obscure language that working people cannot understand and less, worse than not understanding, feel kind of mocked by, kind of feel, feel excluded from. You know, I teach in a university and I see how this sort of escalation of complexity and rhetoric, um, you know, it's its own currency, right? Like how many isms can you weave in one sentence, you know? Um, and I've, you know, I've always tried to write books in the language that I speak in this, this book more than it and more than any other. It was my goal to write in the, in the tone that I speak to my friends with all the sort of absurdist humor and kind of plain spokenness um, because... I, you know, I see how part, you know, part of the kind of the culture of social media becomes a competition for who can 
perform knowledge of enough theory, um, and and that becomes a certain a way of impressing one another. And it it's just the kiss of death for mass organizing. Mm, <laughs> and a huge re- amount of it is about in groups and out yeah. groups and yeah. sh- publicly shaming people yeah, and I, gaining kudos for doing that. All those all that sort of bad stuff. Yeah, and uh, you know, in the book, I. You know, I, I start with Wolf, but in the end, I I probably re- write more about Steve Bannon, who she is now very much in in cahoots with. She's on his show sometimes every day. They published a book together. Um, you listen to a lot of that, of Steve Bannon's show, which which is kind of tough. I've listened to it a couple of times. I'm not sure I could listen to it as much as you did. Yeah, I mean, at a certain point, I had his theme song stuck in my head. You know, I mean, it's hundreds of hours of, of Bannon. Um, I learned a lot from listening about what the appeal is. And one of the things that I, I was really struck by is that every insult, every every one of those kind of coastal liberal elite sneers towards this, you know, in, in the U.S. it's very coast versus the center of the country. Sure. Um, they're cl- they're, they're clung to, you know. Um, at Bannon is still talking about the deplorables, you know, the way Hillary Clinton in, tw- in 2016 wrote off a, a large part of Trump's base as the, the deplorables. You know, that was a long time ago. They are still talking about it daily hmm. because it is part of how they're building this movement off of our disdain, you know. Uh, uh, and so I, I um, you know, I think some, some, some people expect expected me to be kind of crueler to Wolf in the book than I actually am. Uh, you know, I don't I don't wallow in sort of mocking her or, or 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 spend a lot of time going over the worst moments of her life. No, but more interestingly, I think you do write about the way in which her own experience, life experience as a public figure. She's gone through an, a, quite a number of humiliations. Mm-hmm. And I think that is a contributory factor to what's happened. I think I think yeah. that's kind of clear from the book. Uh, the, yeah. the one I became most most aware of because it was more in this part of the world was a, a kind of a, li- a live radio moment on the, on the BBC where she had a book which uh, the rug was pulled out completely from under it. The research was shown to be entirely wrong and flawed. And it's not the kind of thing that you hear in live radio very often. And I would have thought, you know, if I put myself in that position, it would be a kind of a defining moment of my whole life. I don't oh, yeah. know how, how I'd recover from it. Yeah, her book um, was, was, was dropped and pulled. Yeah. And, yeah. And, and, and yet she picks herself up and she moves on. But it has to be bearing some pretty heavy baggage after that and many other ones too. Another one Irish listeners may be aware of was when she came to Belfast and she uh, she she tweeted about how uh, the city air was so fresh and clean because there was no 5G signals. It was just like back in the 1970s, which anybody who knows Belfast would think was a pretty weird comparison. Plus there had been 5G, 5G in operation for more than a year there at that point. Sometimes this is I the wonder kind if of that thing. was just a poorly placed comma um, you know where she can't possibly have been referring to, to Belfast, Belfast because she wouldn't have been there. So how could she have known what it was like? I think she was. Pro- she probably meant that it reminded her of her own experience of the 1970s and 70s. But it's also but it was may, maybe so. But it's also kind of symptomatic of the idea yeah. that 5G had mm-hmm. ruined oh, the yeah. lives of everybody in the city, mm-hmm. and that then some of the stuff which you which you you mentioned there about you know vaccinated women causing other women to get sick just by sitting beside them. That one them she definitely and, means. Yeah. Um, yeah, and she's she she's kind of doubled down on this because um, she 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 recently tweeted that. That's even an unvaccinated person sleeping in a hotel room that a vaccinated person had slept in previously could start to have cramping as a result mm. from the vaccine particle shedding. So she's, 
Um, so you know, there is a, there a, is a point with that where you do have to say this is appalling. You know, this is really this is absolutely stupid. You know, you can't. You know, you can only be so gentle. Yeah, with somebody no, who's I putting think that's this right. And I think she's responsible for these really dangerous decisions she's made, and it is not a small thing to to convince people that that vaccines are going to you know cause a genocide and and or you know are causing people to dr- die in droves when they're not because then people decide not to get vaccinated and it's not just the covid vaccine that people are turning on they're turning on childhood vaccines and this is serious you know medical misinformation is a major cause of death in the united states and you know i don't know about here but it's spreading and so that's you know that's why in the book i quote philip roth from his one of his best novels, Operation Shylock, where he says it's too ridiculous to take seriously and too serious to be ridiculous. And that's sort of how I have I've often felt. But I do think that even though she should be held accountable for spreading misinformation, for making major factual errors in her work, I don't think that anything really justifies the kind of sport and pile-on that she has experienced online, and which is very specific to online culture. And, you know, when when those things happen, like it was, you know, people made like you know, like little music videos and slowed it down and RIP. And, you know, it really was kind of uh, a pastime for for, like humiliation is and and watching somebody famous fall in that way is is uh, is a collective sport. And I don't think anybody can withstand that sort of humiliation and shame. Most people just turn inwards and harm themselves and isolate themselves. And a few people will go somewhere else where they're going to be told that that facts don't matter and that they can, you know, every time she posts one of these things that we're laughing about, hundreds, if not thousands of people are in her mentions going, thank you. You are the only one telling the truth, you mm. know. Mm. Um so that brings up the other thing, which also happened in around 2008, 2009, along with the financial crash and Occupy Wall Street, um, which was the advent of the smartphone and mm-hmm. the rise of social media. And that seems to be core to all of this. In fact, it wouldn't even matter. I, don't, I, I would suggest it wouldn't even have mattered to you if people were confusing you with Naomi Wolf all the time, if you weren't getting deluged of messages through your phone attacking you for things you hadn't said. It would just be a slightly funny thing in the background that you knew yeah. about. Everything yeah. changes with, with these tools of communication which uh, which are so much more personal, mm-hmm. are so much more powerful, yeah. and where, ironically, given your first book is no logo, the whole idea of the personal brand gets turbocharged mm-hmm. for individuals. Yeah, yeah, and that was you know that was another one of the reasons why I wanted to fall down this rabbit hole is is that I had been wanting to return to the themes of my first book. Um, Ironically, I stopped writing about branding and marketing because I kept being accused of being my own brand after No Logo came out. And I thought, well, I guess that sort of has happened. So maybe I'll just move on and I'll... And you were trying to stop people, you know, making merch and things, No Logo <laughs> merch, yeah? Yeah, yeah. And, there were, and there was a lot of merch that other people made of No Logo. There's still a craft Because beer. you didn't patent it. I didn't patent... I know, exactly. Yeah. I didn't because I was taking a strong political stand uh, against uh, against copywriting ideas. And and lo and behold, at one point I got a lawyer's letter from uh, a guy who was selling no-logo golf sh- shirts in Florida telling me that I had violated his trademark because he had trademarked it when I hadn't. Um, There's another funny moment where you walk into a no-logo cafe, I think, in Switzerland or somewhere and introduce yourself. In <laughs> the, proprietor, <laughs> the proprietor looks horrified, runs for the kitchen. <laughs> That really did happen. So, you know, in the quarter of a century since No Logo came out, I've watched as 
per, the personal branding culture has really reshaped our interpersonal relationships, has changed our social movements because, of course, political movements brand themselves and compete with one another in the, is, is something like the way corporations compete with each other. Sure. Which is not very good if you want to build coalitions and you want to have as wide a possible base. So I had been looking for a way to come back in to come back at the branding question, but really look at how it had been turbocharged. Because that's as very you political said, yeah. as well, isn't it? I mean, some people argue. I, I think I am um, uh, interviewing a historian of, of neoliberalism, and you know, one interpretation of neoliberalism is that is that it's about the development of what's called the neoliberal self, sure. which is. The person as brand, your narrative, you know, the, the power of your narrative is going to bring success and all, right. the, all that and kind of stuff. And it's not so. because people are jerks. It's because people have been told they're not going to get jobs or have pensions or have any other kind of security. Sure. And that indeed all they have as their kind of life raft in these roiling ever more, uh, um, you know, tumultuous seas is their self, their, their optimized brand, body, family. Um, but the flip side of that is that these are incredibly complex global systems that if they are going to be challenged and changed will only be challenged if there are large numbers of people who get over themselves and, you know, uh, join into coalition with one another. So that ends up being the message if there is one of the book, but it's not in the window in the way that my previous books maybe the, put the um, message in the window. Um, a few months ago, I interviewed the uh, the Atlantic journalist Helen Lewis, who made a series mm -hmm. of podcasts for the BBC called The New Gurus, yeah. which is really about how a lot of the mechanics of this stuff work for all these figures, you sure. know, people like, you know, Andrew Tate, Russell Brand, who's in the news a lot at the moment, and Naomi Wolf, that the, the set of kind of emotional pulls and incentives. Some of them are financial and, you know, some of these people are, are described as grifters, sometimes with some justification. But some of them are emotional as well, what's described as the parasocial relationship that happens between these individuals and their audience who kind of drag them down further and further into that rabbit hole you mentioned. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But it's very different. It's a, it's, it's, I think it's, it's always a combination of all mm -hmm. of that. Everybody's grifting. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, you could argue we're all grifting yeah, to an extent. Yeah, yeah. I yeah. mean, this is the this is the other thing. I mean, this is why I think it's important to look at it from a systemic point of view, so that it isn't just personal. It's like, I mean, I think Andrew Tate should be held accountable. I think Russell Brand should be held accountable. We should all be held accountable for 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 our behavior, but we shouldn't be surprised that we we've created a culture. Um, where he who is best at grifting, you know, rises to the top because that's what it means to marketize every aspect of life, including our very identities. And it wasn't our idea. Like this, like I didn't ask for that. No. Um, so who, it's just everyone's just trying to get ahead in this in a really broken system. And I think we need to figure out how you know if there are any escape routes um, out of it. And then those figures have fewer customers. They have fewer people turning to them who are also, I mean, a lot of what, you know, I've, I listened to, to Helen Lewis's um, series on the new gurus. And, you know, one of the takeaways is, is that people just want to figure out how to live, like how to survive this system. And that is what the promise is. Like, I am going to teach you. It's, it's, a, it's, you know, they're not just putting ideas out there. They're, they're saying to young men, okay, follow these steps, do this, do that. Um, and... And I don't. I don't think it should be a surprise that 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 in a time when it's very hard to figure out how to succeed in this culture, you know, more and more people are you know can't afford a home and they're living with their parents and you know they can't figure out how they can get a job that is going to pay them, that they're looking for tips. 
for all kinds of reasons. So looking for tips. What's from a political perspective, what's going on here? I think, you know, nearly a quarter of a century now since you wrote No Logo, it's a very different political landscape from that moment in the 1990s, which had its own very, very specific things going on. Um, You're a transient critic of the way capitalism operates in the world. But the the left-right divide or the way we understand it seems, and this is a subject in the book, seems to have been sort of flipped on its head. And we now have what I I think you'd agree from reading the book is an incipient fascism, which is a real real and and present danger. Is that the, the... the traditional leftist critique of fascism was it was it was capitalism with a mask. Is that what's going on, or is there something deeper and different going on? Um, capitalism with a mask. I mean, I don't know that it's it's not claiming to be anything other than capitalism, and and you know, it's selling an idea that you can turn back the clock, that you can get some control, um, and anything that you. That, that is unbearable. I mean, I think what's different about this moment is that we really are in a profound reckoning on multiple levels. Um, fascism always comes from a kind of brokenness, from, a, from a, you know, and that was true after the wreckage of the First World War and the sanctions on Germany and the Great Depression. Like, this is the soil in which fascism grew in Europe. But I would argue that our moment is harder to, to bear even than that because we have... The climate crisis bearing down on us, which is saying that our whole, you know, our whole way of life, like we, it's, it's not like over there, those other people did it. It's we are all in the system that is destabilizing our very, very home. Um, you know, so it's, it's, it's almost impossible to look at the reality of our own implication in the glow of our screens, the clothes that we're wearing, the food that we're eating. And so... At the same time, you have these reckonings with the foundations of settler colonial nations. I mean, so you've got COVID, which is a reckoning with much of the realities of of our economies that we don't want to look at, right? If you think about all the sort of celebration of essential workers, you know, the flip side of that is that was just being forced to see all of the people who hold our world up, who are hyper-exploited, who bear uneven amounts of risk, vastly uneven amounts of risk. And so, you know, we're out on our balconies clapping for them. But, um, you know, when you have an airborne virus, you you can't unsee people in the same way. So there is a way in which COVID was like a searchlight above all the shadowlands of our economy. I don't know how it felt here, but, it, you know, I was in the U.S. for the first stage of COVID, and it was like, Suddenly, we're seeing, you know, immigrant workers in, you know, elder care facilities who are hyper, so hyper exploited that they have to work in four different facilities in a single day um, just to put together enough wages to support themselves and maybe send a little bit of money home. And of course, you know, COVID is spreading from one care home to to the next. So suddenly, we're talking about something we never talk about: um, who are the, the shadow workers, very precarious in our economy. Same thing about. You know, Amazon warehouses and chicken poultry processing plants like these. This is where COVID was spreading. So that was a sort of uh, an unveiling, a reckoning with the reality of capitalism. And then George Floyd is murdered and we're suddenly having really deep conversations about how our countries were created and on whose backs and the legacies of those systems to this very day. 
that's also hard. And then the you know climate doesn't climate change doesn't take a break just because you're in the middle of a pandemic and a racial justice reckoning. So we're being hit by storms and heat domes, and that is our future that is now here. So it's like a reckoning. You know, I argue in the book with the present, past, and future all at once. And so I don't think this is the same fascism we've seen before. I think we're seeing like in some cases half the country just just say. I'm sorry, we're going to make up our own reality. Like, this is this is just too much to bear. Um, and Why is it so so extreme <laughs> in the United States? I mean, a lot of the things you described there, <laughs> Irish listeners will be familiar with as well, but not all of them. And you, you don't have a situation where COVID became a tribal political issue, I think, on this side, most of really? this side of the Atlantic. Mm, no, you don't have UK, 50, you don't yeah, have 50% 50. of the population voting for a party which increasingly was in denial mode on it and 50% of the population almost using it. It seemed to me sometimes when people were wearing masks, they didn't even need to wear masks. They were almost using it as a cultural signifier because everything got reduced to, mm. to, to the blue-red battle. I mm. don't think that happened even in the UK, which is a very divided country, you know. But there was always... Um, I think in European countries, there's a substantial minority of people who definitely bought into the kind yeah. of views promoted by Naomi Wolf and yeah. Steve Bannon and many other people. But in America, it seems to me to be to be even more intense. Yeah, I mean, I think I think it comes down to how much your culture, your country, is invested in the mythology of the heroic individual, and you know that is the main uh, cultural myth in the United States is that is that this is a country of quote unquote self-made people mm. um, despite who, the fact that it's very conformist in other, con- in other ways but but this is the story the story mm. is 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 the, the the heroic individual who conquered the frontier um, you know and if you are are if you succeed in this system it's it's by dint of your hard work and your and 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 your superiority and everybody who fails you know failed because they deserved it and because they didn't work hard enough and because maybe they're not as good as you i mean these are the these are the mythologies that 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 created uh uh the country we have weaker versions of them in canada and i think that for that reason we had slightly weaker versions of the of of this of this severing from very hard to bear realities. So, yeah, I mean, when I think about about this, I think it's almost hilarious that our politicians expected after telling people that there is no such thing as society that that we that that we are only accountable to ourselves and 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 to um, our families, and we don't have to care about other people or even see them, and we can pretend that that all of our success is just because of our of our work and not because of all the people whose labor supported our success. That when COVID came along and suddenly we were all told we had to care about each other and we had to think about people who were delivering our food and growing our food and all these people who had been structurally unseen. And more than that, we had to get vaccinated, even if we thought that we were healthy, because we are actually you know, a body of enmeshed bodies. That's what it means to, 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 to be alive, that we aren't just an island. Like, I think it's amazing that they thought that that would fly, like, so suddenly, because it's such a different story than we have been told. So I think societies that have a deeper culture of solidarity that do sort of understand enmeshment at a, you know, more cellular level are going to be better inoculated. But I wouldn't get complacent about it because, you know, I th- I think we live in a time when nat- national national cultures are 
becoming less important than to some extent what podcasts you listen to for six hours a day. You know, Joe Rogan broadcasts a lot sure. uh, and he's big here. Uh, Steve Bannon is on the air 17 hours a week. So that's more than that's more time than most people spend with anybody else in their life. Right. So, you know, sometimes when I'm doing book signings now, like people come up and it's really different than it used to be. I Like I see the book line as kind of an archipelago of podcasts. Like people come up, they're like, I'm here from Q, from Island QAnon Anonymous or like I'm here from, you know, Mark Maron. And it's so interesting. Like everybody is in their own kind of audio island. Their little silo. Yeah. yeah well, that is yeah, part of what has yeah. happened, isn't it, with, with, with media. Although some listeners will say, well, that's fine for the person talking to a national newspaper to say to the person who's being published by Penguin Random House. You know that you know. I'm just observing it. You know, like mm, I, I, sure. I'm a podcast addict, as I told you. <laughs> I got a master's degree worth of hour, a master's degree worth of, of podcast listening. I did want this. to ask you one question before you go, if you wouldn't mind, because you've written very acutely um, about um, the politics of of climate and mm. how that's you know where that is going, yeah. and. Everything we've talked about here plays into that too, it seems to me. I mean, it, again, it started being weaponized for political purposes in the United States and just listening to Donald Trump this week telling people that yeah. nobody's going to take away their internal combustion engines. Yeah, trying Rishi, to turn the UAW strike Rishi into Rishi Sunak um, watered down the net zero plans in the UK last week. You can see it being a big issue in upcoming elections in the Netherlands yeah. and elsewhere. Yeah. Climate is, not surprisingly, uh, easy, it was easy to predict this would happen, but it is now happening that it's coming to the centre stage yeah. of real political contestation and is undoubtedly going to be an element in all these kinds of things we've been talking about here. Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, I, I I look at the political formations that emerged during COVID as now now for the people who are at the center of it and really got a lot of traction and figure and you know built large followings spreading COVID misinformation. They're kind of like a heat seeking missile right now trying to figure out where where's the net where's the next source? Like how are they going to keep this going? Because it was a pretty good ride that they got there. And it seems like a lot of it is going to climate and this idea grafting a bunch of like COVID framings onto climate. So this idea that they want that the elites want climate lockdowns. So you'll have like these wild um, twisted reactions to something like the 15 minute city, which is just like a really um, benign idea that we should all be 15 minutes from like the doctor and the grocery store and casting it and sort of and sort of scandalizing it so that it's actually about locking you in your home except for 15 minutes a day or not letting you go anywhere that isn't 15 minutes away. And if you don't care about things being true or factual, which they don't, then you can just say anything. Um, so yeah, a lot of the energy is going there. Watch for signs that say you are the carbon they want to remove. That's another, that's, a, that's that I'm hearing that one a lot. Um, and you know, the work that I've done on climate um, for the past 15 years has pretty consistently been making the argument that we have to fight inequality and climate change at the same time. And if we pass the costs of the climate transition onto working people while we let oil companies and billionaires get away scot-free, there's going to be a backlash. And we saw this with the Gilets Jaunes. Um, and this is not new, um, but it, we're going to make no climate progress without climate justice. Doppelganger by Naomi Klein is published by Alan Lane. Naomi, thanks very much for coming in. This was such a pleasure, Hugh. Thank you. And that's it for today. Thanks to our producer Declan Conlon and our engineer JJ Vernon. We're going to be back with you very soon indeed, but until then, goodbye and thank you very much for listening.
Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.